0: Hello, and welcome to Under the Hood, the new podcast about digital product strategy and design. And I'm your host, John Clear, from a company called Red Lemonade in Kilkenny, Ireland. And my first chat will be with Emmett Connolly. Emmett is leading the product design team at Intercom. So, a little bit about Intercom first. They're based in Dublin, Ireland, and also in San Francisco. And they build a customer messaging platform that allows software businesses to chat with prospective and existing customers. So helping them with sales, marketing and support. And you've probably seen the Intercom icon on websites in the bottom corner of the screen. It's that blue speech icon with the smiley face. So what I like about Intercom is the constant iteration and product development using really good design process and execution. And without further ado, our first podcast with Emmett Condon. Emmet, thank you very much for taking the time out to do this podcast. I'm um, delighted to have you on board. The whole idea with this podcast really is try and talk to people who work under the hood of products or digital products and get a feeling for their insights. And every so often when they do lift their head above the hood, it's great to get their insights on where they're going, how to see things going in terms of business, in terms of process, in terms of the tools they use. So really delighted to have you on board. And to start with, I think, I just want to ask you in terms of design, where did your interest start with design, it Like, was it from a child or did you actually go to college to do design? Because, you know, it's hard to know these days with designers.
1: Yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, especially maybe people of my vintage now, uh, where certainly interaction design wasn't a thing that you even understood to be a career option growing up. I'm one of those people who had a somewhat circuitous route towards what i'm uh, i've ended up doing um i was always i guess interested in computers and interested in things like uh art and drawing and, and stuff like that and so i think um after i left school design kind of emerged uh as this thing that was just a combination or a really natural overlap of a lot of things that i was naturally interested in uh I did a master's in digital art. So, um, I was an artist for a time, I suppose. Um, but I, I think, uh, I, have you know, underlying all these different things has always been an interest in technology. Um, and you know, the internet really, I came up during the years that the internet came up. And so it's been a fascinating thing to see for the last, uh, 20 odd years or so. And in some ways I've just been, been surfing that, you know?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I always find it good that you you can. I grew up with A B telephones, and now you're in a system where, you know, you just take all this technology for granted. But it's good to have that position where you've you can kind of remember it before it came along as well. It's a it's a good feeling, you know. Um, in terms of your career up to now, so if you know you you moved on from like you were saying doing the 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 digital art almost like you were saying, and then you moved into industry into into business. So where did you start in terms of your career to get you to where you are now?
1: Yeah, I worked with an Irish, small Irish web design agency and I I guess kind of cut my teeth as a designer there for about three or four years. Then I worked at Google for eight years, um, which is when I say that out loud, it sounds like a shockingly long amount of time, but uh, I kept myself busy the whole time. Uh, so I was a designer at Google, and I worked on a whole bunch of um, different projects for them, including working on the search uh, team, and I designed right, uh, Google Flights and, and a couple of their travel uh, projects. And then um, I started a side project there, which turned into Android Wear. That's Google's um, smartwatch. So I ended up moving to uh, San Francisco to help make that happen, uh, and that was a whole other adventure. And then finally, after all of that, I joined Intercom, which is where I am today. Uh, I've been at Intercom for four years now, I think four years tomorrow. Um, I'm the director of product design at Intercom, so essentially means I run and grow and scale and oversee the um, product design team here.
0: Okay, great. And so what you're, you're there four years, and Intercom, it's actually only, what, seven years old, I think, is it? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. It's still a very, still a very young company these days, I suppose. Um, so, look, I suppose what I wanted to talk to you about was what, what, what got me interested in having a chat with you was the um, design in interesting times. It was an article you wrote there um, about two months ago, I'd say. Was it? Maybe it's longer?
1: Yeah, it actually originated as a talk I gave last year. Uh, at Intercom, we give... Um, uh, we generally tend to enjoy putting on speaking events and we put on what we called a world tour where we assembled a, a series of talks and and went on the road and and uh, delivered them in in a bunch of eight or nine different cities around the world so that was where it actually started was as a talk
0: yeah yeah it was the article i found first, actually mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go um so i suppose my question with it is that it's I mean, like, overall, the overarching thing about the design interest in times is trying to find solutions for addressing complexity, whether that's, you know, whatever part of the business. Um, And you gave a quote, not by you, but it was a quote you gave. You said, I think that computers have complicated lives very greatly. The whole age of computer has made it where nobody knows exactly what's going on. And uh, that was by Donald Trump talking about fake news. So, you know, it's, yeah, really... It's so difficult, isn't it? I must admit that
1: he and I don't have a huge degree of overlap in terms of our uh, <laughs> uh, opinions on things, but um, I thought he that was that pretty one. spot on. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, uh, you know, the the genesis of the talk or really the main point as well was, as I have experienced Intercom over the years, you know, the nature of uh, the work that you do in a startup, it changes just so rapidly, especially if you're... Um, experiencing kind of scaling up and growth. Uh, but even those of us who are, you know, working with technology day to day, that the technology shifts under us a lot. And so I think those are, um, as the title suggests, interesting interesting times to operate in. It means that everything is novel um, and new challenges all the time. It can also be kind of um, disorienting in a sense to have uh, very little, um, to grasp onto it sometimes. Uh, I've noticed people can struggle with the ambiguity of the changing startup world and so on. And and then the last part of it was um, maybe there's a lot of parallels to what we're seeing in the kind of broader societal situation today where a lot of people are finding it very difficult, as you mentioned, um, to understand what's really going on with the news or, or politics and, and in society in general. So there's some kind of uh, parallel that I was attempting to draw there.
0: Cool. And I suppose just to go a little bit deeper to give people an understanding of that, one of the first examples you gave was the fallacy of the islanders. Could you just explain that? I thought it was a really interesting way to look at it.
1: Yeah, this is um, the story that some people might have heard already, but it's of uh, what's known as cargo cults. Um, This is uh, islanders in the Pacific Island during World War II, who obviously were kind of unaware of what was going on um, in the in the broader world, but suddenly the Americans came and landed on their islands um, and established military bases there. Um, the islanders; these would have been very like primitive hunter gatherer type societies, and so uh, they were amazed with all the equipment and tools and technology, uh, basically technology, that um, that these. Uh, Strange visitors were bringing to the island, um, and so fast forward a bit, and the war ends, and the and the troops leave, and the islanders are uh, puzzled because obviously the flow of goods has dried up has dried up here, and so they're saying, well, how can we, you know, repeat the success that we just experienced? Um, and they, somewhat naively but understandably from their perspective, set about trying to recreate the conditions that they had just witnessed. And so they build um, amazing photos of this. Uh, They build giant um, replicas of airplanes out of bamboos and giant control towers, because that's what had brought about um, the arrival of the goods previously. Um, And of course, it didn't result in any magical arrival of goods, but I think it serves as a pretty interesting parable almost in terms of how I think we sometimes think about other companies and what they do and what their process might be um and we tend to i think sometimes borderline obsess over emulating uh what we see other companies do and i think the reality of what happens behind those closed doors is is, tends to be a lot more uh complicated and nuanced than that
0: yeah i think so and i think that it does remind me a lot of kind of the idea of format thinking and just give that some kind of background i suppose it's that whole idea like you're saying that we tend to, like the islanders, they just replicate what they saw, presuming that this will bring the goods, you know. Um Back in the day, or not back in the day, I should say, but if we look at generations of, of human beings, and this is to show the attrition of change that's happening, and I just love these figures, that, like, if you look back 650 generations ago, this was just you, uh, Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. just humans, basically throwing sticks at each other and living in caves, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's only, and if we pull back with these figures and go, like, the 75 generations ago, it's the first time we've seen or we've seen the written language being used. And then it's only six generations ago that we have the printed press. I find it hard to imagine, mm. but it's actually true. And then it's only three generations ago we got the the engine. And and now we're, in, we're living in a world where we have smartphones, self-driving cars, Tinder, and God knows what else, you know. But the whole idea is that there's even people alive in this generation who witnessed, you know, NASA with the man walking on the moon and that same person today has a smartphone in their arse pocket. Mm. And the beauty of that is that the the technology that sits within the phone in their arse pocket is something like 10 times the computing power that NASA had to put a man on the moon, you know? (laughs) So it's kind of fascinating in terms of like, in terms of format thinking there was a guy, um, Marshall McLuhan and he said that if you, if we look, we, we currently look at the present through a rear view mirror and I think we are driving that car Looking at things backwards in some ways, and we look at tools I think in backwards in some ways, so I think we are because of the, the rate of attrition and those figures as we got closer to where we are now, we are kind of islanders we're seeing this new technology, and we like you're saying we're, we're not we don't really know what to do with it or how, are we using it right, et cetera and that does cause all of the confusion and then um something you'd said you'd said as well, you were talking about how people are now coming up with solutions um, to complicated things and you, you gave two examples and i wondered if you could run through the two of them one was was it malcolm mclean who designed the system for shipping as such and then you had another example of you know what designers use as a uh, what would you call it S- solutions to complex systems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah
1: um yeah so it, it's essentially ad- addressing exactly what you said there um i guess everyone has always felt to a certain extent that they're living in interesting times but it does feel like the rate of technological change is getting so much quicker uh, nowadays that uh, it's hard for people to keep up and so you know the question becomes what do you what do you do about something like that how do you address it do you just give up or do you try and um, uh, engage with it in some way um, And the Malcolm McLean story that you mentioned there is one where uh, it's an il- it's an illustration of how systems thinking, And developing high-level systems for thinking about complex problems can often help you understand them and can um, also help you develop solutions. So the very short version of this story was that uh, back in the day, this would have been um, the 1930s uh, or 40s, I believe, Um, Mm -hmm. shipping goods was pretty inefficient. There was lots of loading and unloading bags and crates on and off of ships. And the turnaround time for a ship in a port might be a couple of days. Um, and there was a lot of inefficiency built into it. Um, and there was a truck driver named named Malcolm McLean, and he kind of got frustrated with this, you know, he was trying really hard to drive his cargo from A to B as quickly as he could. And then things would just grind to a halt when he hit the port. Uh, and so he designed a system to address the problem and the system was, uh, a, a truck that had a a, a bed of a certain um, size and shape, and then these containers that could fit perfectly onto that bed, and then a crane that could at the dockside that could lift it off, um, and drop it into the ship, and the ship is also perfectly sized to accommodate this. So it's basically all arranged around this idea of a standard um, container and things that can accommodate it as as part of the broader system that moves it around. Uh, And so what I'm obviously describing, if I'm doing it uh, evocatively enough at least, are these shipping container systems that you see basically in every port in the world. Um, And -hmm. the last
0: standardized, standardized,
1: and that's the last part I think that was interesting about the Malcolm McLean story is that he kind of made those standards um, available publicly for free. And so every port all around the world was able to adopt it. Uh, And obviously, massive efficiency gains uh, were able to be achieved because of that. And so the lesson there, I think, is uh, by thinking in systems or just setting up systems, you can encapsulate a lot of complexity into a manageable thing, in this case, a container, and then move the container around. Um, And I think that that way of thinking can be applied to all sorts of problems that designers um, encounter in their day-to-day work, Uh, whether it's thinking about a huge, uh, complicated product as a system and drawing a simple diagram and saying, okay, now let's zoom in on just this part of the diagram and understand how that works, Um, or whether it's something uh, a bit more Tangible, like a design system, which lots of design teams are creating at the moment uh, as a way of representing their product and um, not having to deal with the low level details of the design problems all the time. Right. They they get to be slightly insulated from every small design decision and they say, oh, now I'm working with these objects that exist in our design system uh, and I can design with them
0: instead. What kind of objects with Adobe? Could you explain that a little bit about those design objects that designers use? And this goes beyond like like signage templates or style guides as such?
1: Right. I, I think there's been a bit of a there's been a bit of a development uh, or, or evolution mm-hmm. as with everything else of, of the way we think about these. Some of the earliest examples for for the web, certainly um, of a design system would have been the likes of Twitter bootstrap. Which was basically a set of components, headers, dropdowns, buttons, and you could very quickly like put them together to form um, a functioning product. I think what's interesting and what we're seeing now is a lot of these um, uh, design systems being developed in-house, uh, where a company like Intercom, for example, um, says, "You know what? Like this generic design system, this Bootstrap-like thing, or Material Design, whatever it is." Um, doesn't really know much about our product, if you know what I mean. It doesn't know that our product has these entities or objects that we use again and again and again in our designs. So Intercom is essentially um, a messaging product for, for businesses to communicate with their customers. And so we have things like customers and conversations and uh, mm. things like that that are core parts of our system. And so our design system isn't just made up of little UI widgets like buttons and drop-downs. It's made up of actual parts of our system that hold meaning within Intercom, like customers or conversations or messages or articles, big, big chunks of our system. And um, I think that's what we're kind of seeing as more and more of these systems uh, come in house and people realize, "Mm, I can actually build like a bespoke design system that is not some generic thing, but actually is directly relevant to how my product works and not just how it looks.
0: Okay, and it's kind of like I suppose that's from the the design element and and working that process within within your company, and in the development end you have things like um you know like Red Hat and Docker don't they kind of they've already tried to address that kind of abstract thing with like they call a container platform they actually call a container as well right that?
1: exactly yeah I, I think a lot of these you know as as with everything else uh, in the world uh, there's not a lot of new things under the sun and. If we look to a lot of our, our peers or people in other disciplines, uh, there's a ton of great ideas that they have there that are are ripe for plundering. One of those is is yeah. what you're kind of describing there, which is these design systems, they're kind of, kind of a bit like object-oriented programming, if you're like somewhat familiar with mm-hmm. how that works, where engineers also have this problem where they're like, oh, there are hundreds of thousands of lines of code in our code base. How can any one person keep track of it? And what they do is they encapsulate large parts of their code base as objects, and then they manipulate those objects. So um, it's the same idea of being able to both have these objects that you can dive into an object and change it if you want, but you can dive back out and see the whole system as a series of objects that you're kind of attempting to plug together into, um, into a workflow.
0: So it's really it's a way of thinking, isn't it? It's, it's not, like I think you finished up on that part of that that article. You were saying that um, it's a it's not. A, you were saying what was it? It's not all things that this uh, solution. Yeah, you were just saying that it's, the it's a solution is not more technology. It really is looking at how you present these things and how you put them together. So I think that's yeah, it's a very interesting way to look at it, and it's something yeah. I think we'll see a lot more of that coming into like you. You think as a design ops, you call it then? Is it to um, within your company, you started with it was yeah. You'd mentioned what was that? Is it design ops? Was yeah, that design called?
1: ops, design operations. Yeah, yet another, by the way, idea that uh, has been shamelessly ripped off from our engineering counterparts here, <laughs> where DevOps is a pretty common thing. Um, other teams have this also. Say we have sales ops at Intercom, for example. Uh, okay. What this basically is is, um, uh, ops stands for operations. And it's a way of thinking Mm -hmm. about uh, a lot of the common tactics and uh, execution steps that you go through in doing your work. Um, And it's kind of codifying those or basically defining a simple process for those so that as you scale up your team, everybody can work in the same ways. You get a nice sense of coherency across the work. There's a bunch of... um, Uh, efficiencies that you gain from economies of scale Um, and so what this means in practice, by the way, you know, it's nothing very highfalutin at all it simply um, often involves writing down a lot of the common practices so that everybody is just crystal clear what it is that you're actually doing um this might be things like design principles so kind of a set of rules or guidelines for how we uh make design decisions it might be our process written down um and then a lot of it is a lot of the common behaviors that are or tasks that we have how can we um formalize those a bit so that we have like an official organized efficient way of doing it so another thing you might be concerned with with design ops is um how you do recruiting, Recru- you know, uh, put a lot of work into recruiting the right people. That's a whole process that needs to be designed in itself. Um, you might put attention into uh, all, sor- all sorts of things about how you run your team if you have a lot of work around... Um, resourcing as in what should you know our ex-designers work on this quarter or whatever it's useful to build a a process around that so it's not some big drama every quarter that you have to have to do that um and these are just some of the things i think that once you you know you were talking about scaling up and so on once you hit a certain amount of scale it's almost back to what we were saying before like if you just got four people sitting around a table A lot of this stuff happens naturally or by by osmosis. And once you scale up to, we have, um, I think, about 20 product designers at Intercom now, um, then you need to put put a bit more structure in place that makes it clear to everybody and and gives you some repeatable stuff. So it's somewhat surprising, but the operations part is is quite an important part just to keep everything running smoothly on a day-to-day basis, uh, especially once you get to that larger size.
0: And would you, as your role uh, within there, Emmett, like as design, would you be looking at the, you know, designing those operations for careers, designing op- operations for product designers? Would you oversee all those different departments as well? Uh,
1: so we're just as a designer. Yeah, we're just doing it for. Uh, sorry, the question is, uh, what are the different roles within product design? Is that it?
0: No, sorry. Let's say your role with, um, in Intercom at the moment, as you know, a designer. Do you, you know, like you were saying for for let's say for careers, um, you have to design, uh, you know, an, an operation there to get to make sure that works correctly yeah. and is successful. Would you be involved in putting that together as well, using your design perspective?
1: Uh, it really depends on the on the specific task. I am lucky that we have an amazing team, and so uh, I, I will say this. The design ops thing, one thing I've learned in trying to execute it is uh, that I'm almost the last person who should be making specific decisions about how the team works, Uh, and so it very much needs to be this... um, uh, collaborative process with the team where I'm mostly there to listen and detect where things are starting to break down and then facilitate a better way of working for the scale or stage that we're at or the types of projects that we have. Um, so really, you know, my job is not to go and tell people how to do their work, their best position to figure that out. Uh, and my job is to figure out then well what's working across the board more broadly and how can we spread it and make it kind of a a de facto standard that everyone gets to um use
0: okay cool and what i'll do is based on that i'm just going to go in a little bit deeper then just look at ux and kind of just move away slightly from the design and interesting Mm -hmm. times and there was an article by um paul adams who's, who's a colleague of yours he's vp of product and he wrote an article called the end of nasal gazing And that article, along with another one I read by Jonathan Courtney called The Golden Age of UX is Over. Um, I just found these two quite interesting because it's about UX and let's say, you know, possibly a lot of people who'd be listening to this would be involved in Mm -hmm. UX. And I think what Jonathan was trying to say was that you have to be very careful in terms of the role, uh, your role in UX for two reasons. One is that, um, let's say, the products that are coming out now for for being a UX designer, whether it's Adobe XD or it's, it's, it's Sketch and you're using Envision, they're quite cheap projects or quite cheap products. Everyone can get on board and using them straight away. And so there's a lot of people coming in who are now UX designers, but also they're catching up quite quickly in terms of the use of these applications with people like myself or yourself who might be using them, who are you know slightly older than some of the new people are coming along. So what's happening is there's a, I think there's a lot of UX designers out there. I think a lot of them are using the same products, and is there, is, do you think that UX is becoming a little bit of a commodity that you they need to now grow beyond the UX department? Because Paul had said that, um, you know, the old, if, if anyone if you just type, you know, UX into Google and look for a diagram, you'll get a picture of the UX, the user and the, user, use the UX team in the middle, which is a fallacy really, as Paul was saying that, you know, it's actually design is just one part of the whole system. And you need to integrate more with the system in your business rather than just completely focusing on the user. Mm. Uh, there's so much, to, <laughs> so much. To it's on sorry, there is. Yeah, I am you a statement there. Yeah. Question.
1: Um, it kind of makes me think. You know, you were you to to call back to what you were saying about you know ten generations mm. ago. Um, we thought very mm. differently about the world. It's not that long ago that we had um, this very uh, earth centric uh heliocentric as it's known i think um view of the world and then we uh you know technology progressed uh and it helped us to advance our thinking and understand that no the sun does not literally revolve around us that the opposite is actually true um and i yeah. think that that is uh, in many ways that type of shifting of understanding about your place in the world is um is what progress looks like uh, I. Yeah. this is a bit, slightly off piste, but I'm, al- I also have two small kids and, uh, it's right. also a part of the process that they go through where they gradually go from being toddlers and essentially thinking they're the center of the world, right. Uh, to, uh, understanding their place in the world a bit more clearly and how they fit in. And that's a tough little transition yeah. for a, you know, it a is, three, yeah. four year old kid to make. Um. And I think there's something similar going on. You know, any any um, discipline that matures to a certain level probably matures, goes through some version of of this process where they understand, oh, like yes, I'm totally deep into my own world and my own craft, and I think that's a very important part of mastering the craft of design. Yeah, but I think there is that next stage uh, where you start to understand how. What the true value of design uh, actually is, we, we're kind of coming out of this. Um, I think period, especially in the tech world of of technology uh, and and how we think about design and design teams fit into the world, that possibly really got kicked off with like Apple and a lot of of its success from whatever it was, like the the mid to late nineties, or especially from the the mid nineties to today. And Apple probably did people in our industry, design people in our industry, a ton of favors. Like there was always this question of it's pretty like hackneyed or almost cliched at this point, but of designers having a seat at the table, right? Um yeah. and I think that uh, a lot of the reaction was like, well, wow, Apple has this amazing magic design pixie dust. We should sprinkle some of that on our um product to and so design almost got gifted in many cases uh, the so called seat at the table, and I think that was good. It was a huge you know boost to designers and our role and profile. I think there's still some grappling to be done to figure out like well now that you've got the seat, what are you going to do with it, right? And and that's kind of the gist of uh, what I think Paul was getting at was understanding not yeah. just the importance of design to you as a designer or even the importance of design in creating just a straight up great user experience, but also like the value of design to the organization um, and what yeah. you can actually offer that's unique and different. Uh, and so I think it's just one of those little steps that you go along in in really figuring out your place in the world, you know?
0: no i think so i mean like i started in ux myself in 99 way back you know and i was with a company called cambridge technology Partners, it's long gone now but i remember that when we started with them they really wanted to make sure we were integrated with the whole team so you never sit, sat with another designer you're always beside a you know someone involved in development or someone in, in, in content mm-hmm. writing or whatever it was So it was a really nice way to work and then i kind of drifted out of it for a while then with my own business and you know, I did see UX becoming quite insular in some ways, but it is branching out now. And even we're doing design sprints now, and it is it's it is interesting where you have, when you bring in a group of people and work on a project, it's the people from, it's the variety on the team and using design to get some really great solutions. Because I think Paul Adams had mentioned as well that, you know, when he's looking for where did to go next with the product strategy and stuff, that he kind of looks to the people who are at the, 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 the front, the people making those sales calls, what are, what are, the, are the reaction they're getting from the customer straight up, mm. you know, rather than just design the team, design team trying to decide what the user wants, you know. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a good area. Um, another book that people might be interested in is, you know, um a Hack and Growth by Sean Ellison. He kind of talks about that as well, how building growth teams and, you know, iteration after iteration. But he really focuses on the fact that within that sales funnel for a team, um sometimes the best solutions for marketing might come from development or and vice versa so yeah i think it's it's a very interesting way that design needs to like you were saying it's brought up to the c-suite but they have to bring something with it now and that's from the integration with the whole team yeah uh,
1: it's kind of interesting because i i think a lot of what we're speaking about here um mm-hmm. kind of highlights maybe a growth opportunity for a bunch of designers who are thinking well how do i you know um think ahead and elevate myself maybe beyond just the craft uh, to having broader impact. And again, uh, what you're describing there of inviting lots of different stakeholders in is uh, some form of systems thinking. It's thinking about how your business operates as an entirety rather than just thinking inside your own little silo. Um, and, And again, I think that if designers can get good at that, they can apply it directly to their own work. But it's also very applicable to thinking about how you Operate as a function within your company, um, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, what I might do is just move on to the, the the second last thing I want to talk to you about, and this all flows through. I think um, UXDX. The conference was on there um, a couple of weeks ago, and you were given a talk at it there about the tools we use. So I just want to go back into. You know, we were looking at the complexity of let's say the world now and we're operating in business and design. Now we're just going to go back and look a bit at the tools that we use. And I think you were saying that I'm just going to go quickly through this. You'd mentioned that um, we are the makers who build tools, but we also use them. So we need to think of um, the latter with as much energy as us. I think that's something along that line. You were saying basically that, you know, um, we, we, you have to take responsibility for your tools yeah it's certainly for the ones you're building because we are building tools as well aren't we more yeah
1: I, th- this really stemmed from actually thinking about the design ops thing uh and and thinking about it as in some way being a tool right and and me as a design leader it's one of the you know and, and creating these processes and so on they're the tools that i have available to me to actually affect change on how the team works and thus the output that the team produces right uh and so um in some ways maybe this is like the designer's disease you can't stop seeing everything uh, that you interact with as a, a design problem but in some ways i still think of my challenges that i have in running the team as at some fundamental level being a design problem how do i set up the processes the workflows how do i align individuals motivations with what the desires of the of the business might be all all that kind of stuff um and again i think there's kind of a parallel so that's thinking about um you know uh, how we operate and design operations as being a tool and then there's just this whole fascinating stream of work coming out with designers tools in general which is things like there's a new um like you i think said already there's Figma or Framer X or uh, uh, Invision Studio. There's this plethora of new tools uh, coming out. You know, it was as as short as little as five years ago. It was relatively straightforward. You used Photoshop, maybe you yeah. used Illustrator. There wasn't a lot else. And then starting with Sketch, all these tools that are very um, uh, much tailored towards UI design. Uh, and and then finally the kind of gist of the ways in which. It's worth thinking about that is, you know, there's a certain meta quality to designers designing tools. uh, And I think that there's a lot of um, hidden biases, really, that are getting coded in the tools that we build uh, that suggest a certain type of output is good. So, for example, um, there's been this parallel between the emergence of Sketch. The, the vector drawing program and um, flat design and so there's some like yes. interrelationship that exists between the tools and the output that exists and the tools certainly yeah. like encourage at the very least a certain style of output
0: So in a nutshell what you were saying there was basically that you could see the output of let's say a design for an in, you know for a, a mobile device or something like a, a digital interface and you could go that was designed and sketched yeah. Or that with yeah, it's it's kind of there's a style kind of at the moment, isn't it? Almost of that's that these products produce that it's just very similar. Is I think so.
1: Saying? And there's a push and pull here between what the tools influence you to do and what the trends kind of you know um, mm. nudge you to do. But this is something that it isn't you know either specific to UI design. Um, I, I saw uh, a, a tweet uh, recently where somebody has essentially quoted the C, uh, I think it was the CTO of Autodesk. They make AutoCAD, like the it CAD was. drawing program. And he essentially said, like, I can walk through any building and tell you what version of AutoCAD was used to design this building, which
0: yeah, that's is, quote exactly is, is mind-blowing that's uh, quote.
1: when you think about it yeah, and, it's and is a really uh, yeah. literally... Solid, tangible illustration of how the tools that we choose to use actually influence the work that we produce.
0: And just to close on Emmett, I just I was looking through uh, your your the, wax. was that a yes. um, It was about I think it was a couple of months ago. You'd mentioned um, there was uh, Tristan Harris, I think it was. He's, he did an internal presentation with um, Google on ethics of attention. You know. And I think, again, this is just an interesting thing to look at with tools at the moment. Of course, you know, the iOS and and, and Google's latest um, Android update or whatever did kind of, they're trying to f- focus now on what way we're using our attention on our phones. And and uh, it's it's a very interesting area. Even when at UXDX, uh, we'd take one of the coffee breaks and you were sitting two two seats next to me talking to a guy. And then I was just waiting to have a chat with you. Just went onto my phone got lost looking at cat <laughs> memes and then yeah. missed you, you know? And, and I think we all suffer from this, and I think these tools are great, but we have to be very, very careful with them. And there was something in that about um, the, the, that, that guy Tristan mentioned, he called it attention mm. casinos, you know, and, uh, and he said the house always wins. So in terms of, I suppose my question for you is that in, in working um, in Intercom, do you bring in certain things to help people? Not obviously to be more productive, but it's just a healthier way to be. It's something that you do to make sure that people don't get lost in the music of very easily, not necessarily looking at Facebook or just get, you know, replying to emails straight away when you shouldn't really be doing that, you know?
1: Yeah, I guess this gets back to, uh,
0: you know, really
1: the thing that you were saying uh, or that I was saying before of just writing things that you believe down so that it's obvious and you don't expect everyone to um, magically absorb it somehow. So, yeah, we do try and be somewhat explicit about how we... How we work uh, as a company, how we communicate. Mm. Definitely as you scale um, the number of possible connections with people is another one of those exponential things that grows. Uh, and so the it's extremely easy as you turn into a bigger company to spend all of your time working really hard, talking to everyone, keeping in the loop, staying up to date with what's going on, not getting really a tap done, right? Um, And so you need to be very conscious of those types of things. So we have some like light guidelines that we've written down around, um, you know, the expectation is that uh, an email deserves a reply within 24 hours, whereas a Slack message deserves a reply in the same day. Personally, I have put extremely strict rules for myself uh, around the use of Slack, where I do not treat it as a real time communication tool, um, because I'd just be chatting with people in Slack all day if I did that um and so there's definitely some things that you need to put in place you know a lot of it is is also just good hygiene in terms of how you work and communicate are you running your meetings well you know is there an agenda do you have some outputs at the end of it and clear next steps things like that um the work in you know offices and and work is a weird environment for us to be in as humans we're back to the back to the islanders thing you know our natural state is to be in groups of uh 50 or 100 or 150 people right there's some natural limit uh, the dunbar number or, or whatever um and we break a lot of those things that come naturally to us as humans in in an office environment and so i think you need to be conscious of um of not falling into the traps you know we're we're keeping keyed to communicate. That's why when your phone beeps, uh you need to go and check what that thing is on Facebook. And that's why when you get a slack ping, you feel, oh, I need to jump on this right now. Because communication is an extremely natural thing. And and back to the responsibilities of the tool of the people who design those tools, I think this is what we're starting to understand as an industry, especially over the past couple of years, where things like Tristan's topic of time well spent and attention has become um more and more to the fore. Uh, the responsibilities that the designers of those tools have is that they're not designed in um, such a way that merely, uh, you know, optimizes for engagement because simply uh, getting every last ounce yeah. of engagement doesn't necessarily count as uh, a, a high-quality interaction. Yeah.
0: Actually, was, we have an event in Kilkenny called Tech Thursday on every month, and recently we had Ashley Curtis there who's product development for Microsoft and she was telling me that um, they've actually worked with a county council in ireland and they brought in some of their experience to help them you know have a better digital culture and uh, one of the things she said was and it's something i'm completely uh, guilty of she said that they set up systems where they were finding out how people within the organization were using email so if they were replying to email straight away that was a really bad Mm. sign because that means activity isn't good and i'm completely guilty of that so they operated she she introduced tools that already exist but championed people within there to help help them use the tools correctly so i mean they had slack they had you know skype just weren't using them correctly and they introduced i think it was saying she introduced slack where you didn't email a single person you emailed within your group so you thought twice before you sent an email out or sent a slack message And then there was less knee-jerk reactions as well to, to messages. So that freed up loads of time. And I thought that was a very interesting way to work. Um, and look, thats I think that's about it, really. There's two other books actually just come to mind about that whole area of, you know, your attention. There's one that came out recently um, called Make Time. I don't know if you've heard of that one. And it's by uh, Jake Knapp, you know, the guy who wrote the design sprints. And he talks about that thing you were saying about where we're, we're instinctively built to react to an alert or to communication. And he, he kind of he walks through all that systems of where we we have those natural impulses and the, you know, that the back of our cortex, which is just built to react to things and how we can actually deal with them in a the modern world. Because still we're still really, you know, the Neanderthal in some ways, you know, because it, change has come so fast in terms of technology. Um, and it's a really good book to look at for that kind of thing. And there was another one just came out this week by Jason Friedman from Basecamp, and he was about had a book about it. it doesn't have to mm. be hectic at work, and uh, it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be crazy at work. I think it's called, but it's very good in terms of it does allow you to to look at and work more efficiently and more healthily. You know, I'm just think it's a it's something that we're going to hear a lot more of. I think, and and tools are going to become more important within that respect.
1: Absolutely, uh, and again, like these are tools to fight back against some of the tools, yeah. right? Like, you know, where yeah, yeah. You, the incessant slack pinging is a tool that is trying to, you know, trying to do something for you, but it, it also, in some cases, does something that isn't necessarily uh, always a great model of engagement. And so we as designers come up with tools or processes. And, you know, I, I actually know Jake from uh, the Google days. And um, Very good. he, uh, yeah, I think it's really it's really useful for us to have some of these tools that we can deploy where you say, well, I'm going to manage my usage of my phone or my usage of these communication tools or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I, you know, designers going to design, I guess. And, and it's a, it's a bit of a merry-go-round as we go. Um, but, uh, that's kind of the, the broader conversation that we're in with technology in general, I think. So never a dull moment or interesting time.
0: Yeah yeah exactly so we are a very interesting time so yeah we've managed to loop back to the very start again but listen I'm much appreciated and thank you for uh taking the podcast here just have one or two little questions for you in terms of tips in terms of uh what are you reading at the moment or where do you go for content or keep yourself inspired something other people can maybe look at as well
1: yeah interesting um i have certainly gotten into podcasts a lot recently there's um yeah, there's an app called Castro. I, I really struggled to find, a, again, a workflow. It's weird to think about like your podcast consumption as something that requires a workflow. But I really struggled to yes. find an app that matched the the model with which I wanted to like not have to listen to everything. Um, and there's an mm-hmm. app by an Irish developer actually called Castro for the, for the iPhone. And it's got a great system where you get all the episodes into your inbox and then you mark the ones that you actually want to listen to which is exactly how I want ah. to um, want to process um, uh, podcast episodes, and so yeah. uh, I, I have found that that has been uh, that has been a really great new way for me to, to um, get access to a lot of content. Um, I I I'm, I'm sti- I remain uh, resolutely uh, like an old man on a porch attached to uh, my RSS feeds. You know, I think a lot of the conversation again around attention and so on has been around um, these algorithmically driven feeds. Uh, and Twitter continues to be a useful um, thing to dip in and out of now and then to me. But I uh, really like the control that being a curator of your own RSS feeds allows you to to have. And so that's a really um, important uh, and, and interesting kind of source of, of uh, information for me. Uh, I wish I got to read more books uh, than I did. I think everybody has this uh, has this problem that they complain of. Perhaps it's just one of prioritization. At the moment, I'm reading a book um, called The Design of Childhood. Uh, it's by, um, uh, I think she writes for The New Yorker. Her name is Alexandra Lang, and she's an architecture critic, but she's talking actually about um, how the design of the objects, whether it's toys or playgrounds or whatever that we expose our children to really shapes how they interact with them. It's fascinating. I'm slowly working my way through it uh, in the in the bits of free time I managed to carve out.
0: Just the last thing then, if people want to find you, where can they find you online or where can they read articles about you, etc.?
1: Um, Let me see. Uh, I have a blog called at at ThoughtWax.com and a bit of info about my work at EmmettConnolly.com. I write a bunch of posts on the Intercom blog as well. Uh, I think if you just search for Emmett Connolly Intercom, you'll find that. A bunch of things about design. Um, Yeah, I'm ThoughtWax uh, on Twitter. And that's pretty much it. That should be
0: plenty to start anyone off on. That's great. And Emmett's phone number is uh, 086. (laughs) Emmett, listen, much appreciate, really, really appreciate coming on and having a chat with me today and um, best of luck. And I'm sure I'll I'll run into you somewhere along the line. So that's it. Our very first podcast under the hood. My name's John. You can contact me at john at redlemonade.ie can visit us on the website at redlemonade.ie or you can interact with us at twitter so our handle on twitter is at red lemonade and again thanks for listening and we'll see you very soon